0: One of the things that makes On Being a little different is that we release the unedited version of my entire conversation every week. We do this for transparency, but also so you can be with us from the very beginning of the production process if you'd like. You can hear everything from what my guests had for breakfast, to the small chat between questions, to the gems that we just can't fit into the produced episode. Listen to my unedited interviews wherever you download your podcasts or at On Being.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's
0: Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sylvia Earle. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts, and, as always, at onbeing.org. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Is that Sylvia Earle? It is. Hi. It's Krista Tippett. I'm so thrilled to have you on the other end of the microphone.
2: Well, it's my pleasure.
0: (laughs) Um, So I'm hearing an echo, Chris. Is that—
2: Oh, sorry. No, you, you know what? That's coming from me. I'll uh, kill it. now. Okay, thanks. How does this sound?
0: Um, it's. I think it's. It, okay. Oh, now. Shall
2: we try it again? Okay. <laughs>
0: it. You know. Oh, now I'm. I keep disappearing. Chris, do you hear me disappearing? I'm. Okay. No. Oh, all right. Okay. I think we're fine. I think it's gone. Are you hearing it still? No. Okay. Um. I wonder if you would tell me, so that we don't talk about anything important before we get going, if you would tell me something mundane like um, what you
2: had for breakfast. What I had for breakfast? Blueberries and black coffee and a piece of toast. Okay. How's that?
0: That's good. Chris, is that good for you? Do you have any questions for me before we start?
2: I think I'll just stand by and hear what questions you have for me. Okay, good. (laughs) Oh right. Oh.
0: Mhm. We're we're hearing a little bit of uh what what's the word? Uh, fa- fabric fabric noise. Are you wearing a a coat or a blouse yes, I or some jacket? Okay. Maybe just um uh
2: Are you still hearing it? No. I'm <laughs> just I'm don't sitting move. quietly. Don't <laughs> no moving. <laughs> I'm not hearing much either myself, but you know one thing okay. I'll ask is do you mind um
0: just moving a little bit closer to the table and the microphone, and see how's if that this helps.
2: sound? Is this better? Say, uh, what can I say um, about those blueberries and toast?
0: <laughs> I I want to tell you, I um, I I know I had heard of your work, but I was uh, listening to the BBC in the middle of the night, which I do sometimes, and you were on a program, and you have the most beautiful voice. <laughs> I'm sure people have told you that, but if you hadn't been a an oceanographer, you might have... I mean, it, really, it's just striking. And I, um, the, the radio person in me, as much as the person who's fascinated by what you do, just wanted to be talking to you and get you on the radio.
2: Well, thank you. I'm a fish whisperer. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs>
0: Great. Okay. Are we ready? Okay. Good. Well, then let's just start. Um, I do want to start... Um, uh, I have to say, when I was getting ready to interview you, I, I, I read a lot, but I, and I also, my, one of my producers found the children's biography, the biography for children that was written about you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that?
2: One by Beth Baker.
0: Yeah, that sounds right.
2: Oh, there, yeah. there have been several, yeah. actually. Yeah, but.
0: that was. Uh, I, I thought, uh, as somebody who read a lot of those when I was growing up, I thought, but in some ways, that's a really special honor, I would think, to have a biography it, for children.
2: It's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: right. It puts you in there with presidents, and, um, mm. <laughs> and so, and I think in, in, but it's clear to me that um, that you discovered the natural world in general, and water in particular, and then the ocean in, in your earliest life. I mean, this seems to have, from as far back as you can remember, have been part of you and your imagination.
2: The mm, critter person. <laughs> I think it, children generally start out that way, given a chance. Mm. To explore, even in their own backyard. Yeah. So often, the adults around them will say, "Oh, don't touch that beetle," or "Ugh, an earthworm," <laughs> <laughs> or caterpillars, yuck. And my parents were different, especially my mother, hmm. who was known as the bird lady in the neighborhood because any injured creature, not just the birds, found their way to her doorstep, and we had. Almost always a hospital for small injured animals in oh. in motion, it's and they mostly recovered too. She had a way with all kinds of life, mm. including children, mm. myself included.
0: And then eventually, you moved. You actually moved to Florida, and you were on the ocean.
2: Yes, the Gulf of Mexico was my backyard from the age of twelve onward, and I still regard it as my my. Backyard laboratory play place.
0: Mm.
2: Mm. It's lovely.
0: Was there um, was there a, a spiritual background to your childhood or a religious background to to that a passion that your that your mother had for um, nature?
2: I think there is a basic ethical attitude, respect for life, respect for other humans, certainly, but for all forms of life, mm-hmm. and it's something that if everyone could could just realize how special it is to be alive
1: mm.
2: on this little blue speck in the universe. It's a miracle that life exists at all and that we have a piece of time that is ours, whoever we are, shorter or longer, whatever it is, but to really be a part of the action
1: mm.
2: and to to respect where we have come from, who we are, where we might be going and from my parents, I think I derived an attitude about wanting to make sure that whatever it is that we do, we try to leave the place better than we found it, or at least as good, not to leave the world mm. I, in, in shambles. What, my mother used to come into my room and remind me that I should try to leave the place better than I found it. <laughs> <laughs> my, my father would watch me try to take things apart it was my inclination to see how things work.
1: Hmm.
2: And he reminded me that we we should remember how to put things back together again when you take them apart. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to lose any of the pieces. Hmm. <laughs> and I've taken that to heart over the years just looking at what we generally are doing to the planet. Yeah. We don't know how to put things back together again. We certainly are good at taking things apart. And we have lost a lot of the pieces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we're leading the world in shape as good as we found it, but I think we we can't go back to what was 10, 20, 100, 1,000 years ago, but we can make things better than they otherwise would be if we just let the current trends continue or right. cons- consume, consume, and not have respect for the systems that keep us alive.
0: Right. So I want to go through a bit, you know, your journey of... Um Knowing what you know, but also this just this sense of discovery that I have all the way through, um, and um, beginning, you know, you, you often talk about this invitation, in the summer of 1964, as one of the moments that literally changed your life. Um, would you tell that story?
2: Well, I was a graduate student at Duke. On my way, I hoped to get a Ph.D.,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I hadn't crossed all the Ts and passed all the exams yet, but I had done most of the research on my doctoral dissertation. But one of my fellow colleagues at Duke was scheduled to go on an expedition to the Indian Ocean for six weeks. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And at the last moment, he had to drop out. He was much better qualified than I was to do this. I had never been west of the Mississippi, let alone, or out of the country, let alone to go to the Indian Ocean. But I was supported by my parents and by my then husband, who I think would like to have gone himself, but he wasn't invited. (laughs) I was. (laughs) And so I had two small children at the time, uh, ages two and four. And so it was a bit of a a leap Hmm. of on not just my part, but the whole family had to make it possible for me to take off and do this, but I did. I said yes, and so I was accepted, and it was only when we're right in the closing almost hours of getting ready for departure when I had a call from Ed Chin, who was the chief scientist, and he said, you know, this is, it may not be a problem, but you should know you're going to be the only woman on board and there are 70 men. <laughs> Seventy. I, I said, oh, I don't see that to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it really wasn't. Uh, and The only thing was that when I got to Mombasa, our leaping-off place to get on the, the ship to cruise, take off on this cruise, I was interviewed along the other... Scientists. There were 12 of us supported by this big crew.
1: Right.
2: Um, and we were asked to describe what we were planning to do, and we poured our hearts out about the work that we were hoping to undertake, the explorations among the islands of the Northwest Indian Ocean,
1: mm.
2: the diving. We were able to dive there for the first time mm. in many places. The fish were totally innocent <laughs> of <No> any... <laughs> the actions of any human being. <laughs> and we had some deep water equipment as well, the dredges and nets and hooks and things that we deploy over the side to sample what was below. But the next day, the Mombasa Times headline said, Sylvia sails away with 70 men. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the subtitle was, But she expects no problems. <laughs> Actually, the, the kind of problems I think they were thinking of uh, were not the kind of problems that we're, we're there at all. Our real problem was how do you explore the ocean when you're sitting on the deck of a ship? Uh. Uh, and the average depth of the ocean, average depth is two and a half miles. Uh. And we're right there on the surface with these pathetic little tools to try to sample this huge <laughs> expanse of living blue. And mm. we did our best and we came back with some wonderful discoveries. But we're still scratching at the surface of the ocean now. Many years later, the the ways of exploring haven't changed remarkably.
0: You know, I, I was very struck to read that the scuba, which was then called the aqua lung, had just been invented. I guess when you were
2: yeah, when you were beginning your graduate studies, yeah, lucky to be among the first to have a chance to try scuba in the United States. There were a couple of units that my major professor Harold Hum had secured. They were really, it looked like most appropriate for U.S. Navy divers with a big mouthpiece and sort of very simple straps that held the thing in place. No fancy gear such as they now have for calculating decompression. No buoyancy compensator, as they Mm -hmm. say, to adjust your level in the water. Just very basic tank regulator and a weight belt. (laughs) I had two words of instruction breathe naturally over the side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it but what did that make possible? I mean it, it sounds like that really opened a whole
2: new world. Oh it did for me it has for millions of people now. Instructions are much more sophisticated and effective <laughs> than my simple um, don't hold your breath breathe naturally instructions. Right. But now we have been able to see first of all that the ocean is alive. It's not just water, rocks, water, sand, whatever. It's a living system. Every spoonful that you look at, and with magnifying equipment, microscopes, and the like, mm. you can see how much life is in the sea, it, and especially right down to the microbial level. We think of life in the sea in terms of fish and whales and coral reefs and the like, but most of the action. Is hmm. very small, microscopic and sub submicor- microscopic.
0: Hmm. And that really was kind of new knowledge, I mean, in your lifetime.
2: I feel like a witness to, I am, to the greatest era of change on the planet as a whole. Anybody who's been around, even for 10 years, is a part of this, but the longer you've been around, the more you've seen. <laughs> and the, the last half century in particular has been a time of revolutionary change, Mm. in terms of technology, of course, but social, political, and definitely environmental.
1: Mm.
2: And what we know has just exponentially grown since the middle of the 20th century. We didn't know. When Rachel Carson wrote The Sea Around Us, published in 1951, 10 years before her Silent World, The existence of those great mountain chains, hydrothermal vents, the life, the existence of life in the deepest sea seven miles down. Nobody had been there.
1: Mm.
2: Not until 1960 was it possible for two men to make a descent to the deepest part of the sea. And until Mm. this year, when Jim Cameron went back solo in his little Diving capsule,
0: yeah. Jim Cameron, no one, also of Avatar fame,
2: right? <laughs> Avatar and Titanic, yes. and many others. And he's a film producer, but he's he's actually a very smart and well informed person. And although he doesn't have the trappings of the credentials of of a trained engineer or trained scientist, he is as up to speed on engineering and scientific. Matters as as hmm. any person draped with strings of PhDs that I can think of.
0: Hmm.
2: Very very uh, important intellect.
0: And I mean, you did a very remarkable thing. Also, one of those milestones um, in 1979. This is, I think, at the time that people started to dub you "her deepness," which <laughs> what a wonderful <laughs> nickname to have. Um, <laughs> Which was called the Jim Dive, and uh, and that's after the, the suit, I guess, that made that possible. Is that correct? Jim, J-I-M.
2: Yeah, Jim is the name of the first person willing to put that one-person diving system on mm-hmm. going back to the late 1920s. Jim Jarrett mm. in, the, in the England, working with the designer Joseph Perez, who came up with a way to build a diving suit made of metal. Most diving suits prior to that time were soft suits, so you felt the pressure, but the idea here was to develop something that a person could be inside a system at one atmosphere, no change in pressure from the surface, so that no decompression was required. The system had to be strong, of course, like a submarine, but also because it looked like an astronaut suit with arms and legs. His breakthrough, Joseph Press's breakthrough, was to have joints that could move under pressure. And a refinement was made by the time that I came along Mm -hmm. in 1969, so that the joints could move more readily than that original suit. But the the um, idea that you had a personal submersible, a submarine that you could wear and walk around. Right, right. Protected from the pressure was was sort of revolutionary. And
0: so you actually walked, were the first and still the only person to walk the ocean floor at 1,250 feet without a tether.
2: Back to the surface. There, there's a short line connecting me to the, my companion, that little submarine okay. called the Star Two. I rode down on the nose of that little submarine, and then I walked off. But there's a a line connecting the communication system from the submarine to me, so we could talk, and the submarine could talk to the surface. Mm. So we had this link back to those who were eager to know what's going on down there. (laughs) And there is a through-water communication system that worked for the sub, but not for me Mm. in the little suit.
0: So, I mean, what was going on down there? I mean, what... You know, what did you see when you looked around, when you looked up? What was it like? The
2: first first experience is going through the sunlit area and into what generally is known as the twilight zone Mm -hmm. where sunlight fades and darkness begins to take over. It's like the deepest twilight or earliest dawn.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. You can see shapes and this begins, but, but not really distinct forms, and this begins at about 500 feet, and by the time you get down to 600 feet, 200 meters or so, it's really, really dark. It's, it's like starlit uh, circumstances. A thousand feet and below, it is truly dark, but still enough light penetrates clear ocean water in the middle of the day, and that's when I made the dive right about high noon mm. uh, in September. Uh, I could see shapes even at 400 meters at 1,250 feet or so so that uh, (laughs) I could I think that was exciting just to be able to realize that that glow, that soft glow was was the sky above Mm. separated by 1,250 feet (laughs) feet of water but the flash and sparkle and glow of bioluminescent creatures. There were corals uh, that that just grow in a single stretch, no branches, like giant bed springs mm. from the ocean floor. And when I touched them, little little rings of blue fire pulsed all the way down from where I touched to the base of these spiraling creatures. They're taller than I. Mm. <laughs> They're just beautiful creatures. They call them bamboo coral because they have joints that resemble the joints on a bamboo plant. Oh, I wondered well, that. I, I wondered
0: why they were called bamboo coral. Then.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. And I turned, the, the submarine had lights on, and I asked them to turn them off so that I could see the darkness and revel in the bioluminescence. It's that firefly kind of light. Hmm.
3: Uh,
2: but also when the, the lights were on, I could see crabs that were attached to these large corals that grow on the seafloor. Some are pink, some are orange, some are yellow, some are black. They're just beautiful. It's, it's a garden. It looks like a, a flower garden. Mm. And But the, the red crabs were hanging on to these great sea fan-like structures. They looked like shirts on a line. They were just <laughs> a little bit of current. They were just you know slowly moving. There were eels that were wrapped around the base of the coral. It was just beautiful, really ethereal.
0: Mm. And you were down there for two hours?
2: On the bottom, two and a half hours. And I later spoke with a astronaut friend, Buzz Aldrin, and he said, well, that's about as long as we had to walk on the moon, two and a half hours. But what they did not have on the moon, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and those who came later, they didn't have just this avalanche of life, this great mm-hmm. diversity right. all around. Everywhere you look, there were little fish with lights down the side, uh, of course, the corals themselves are alive. There are little burrows of creatures that were dwelling in the sediments on the seafloor. The water itself, it's its just, it's like minestrone, all the <laughs> little bits are alive. <laughs> oh. And, you know, as I hear
0: you talk about that, and, 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 you know, you made the connection with Buzz Aldrin, I mean, so I was born in 1960, right? And I still remember crowding around the television set with my family and everyone I knew was doing this when men first walked on the moon and I what you did was as remarkable uh, and it's not something that um, made such a sensation which which you know you I mean I know you've talked and thought about this a lot, our fascination as human beings with outer space. When, as you describe it, where there's this inner space, which is even less explored
2: at this point, and keeps us alive. Oh, and by keeps the way, us alive. <laughs> <laughs> and it's changing. It's in trouble, and that means we're yeah. in trouble. And we know so little about the ocean. Only about five percent has been seen, let alone explored. Anyone looking for new frontiers, think ocean, because it's really important and it is there to be done i mean it's true on the land as well it's true with our own bodies their frontiers of yes. exploration there how how do we function how, what is the the role of microbes within our own system yeah. what is the role of microbes in the ocean uh, our home or and so much but i i had lunch once with Claire Booth Luce, yeah. a stateswoman, playwright—you know, just a remarkable human being. And this question came up about uh, why is it that people are so, so smitten with everything that goes up skyward and seem to neglect the ocean and the, actually this planet as a whole and. This was in her home in Hawaii, and there's some big puffy white clouds drifting by and blue sky. And she said, well, my dear, it's actually simple. Um, As she gazed skyward, (laughs) she said, heaven is in that direction, and you know what's the other way. (laughs) And there is something to that, you know. People are uplifted, and you think, "Oh, they're feeling really down." <laughs> our, our language reflects. You're in over your head. I mean, that's not a good thing, right? Yeah. But <laughs> anyway. Well, right, and I mean, it's bizarre. light. Up is
0: up, and dark is down. But then, what you discovered yeah. is, is just another There's form of Earth, light. It
2: just happens to be in the ocean. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it sounds to me like. Um, when you you've talked about the nineteen seventies, you this you encountered whales in a new way, and that that was a new realm of discovery. You know, I've had Katie Payne on the show as well, and you oh, wrote about yes. Roger and Katie one of my Payne. heroes. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I mean, so previously had you not been so focused on um, these large these largest of creatures in the ocean?
2: Well, I mean, I love all forms of life, and early on, maybe spending my early years on a little farm, realized that how everything connects, that rain is something that is sometimes a nuisance, but mainly we should welcome it. It's the way the the world functions. And it seemed logical to me, even as a child, that the ocean, that's where most of the water is, and rain that falls out of the sky must have originated largely in the sea. Yeah. And the books don't tell you that. <laughs> no. In fact, the books suggest that they, they show the water cycle with water evaporating Transpiring from trees, going up to form clouds, and there is truth to that. Of course, the water does come from the land, but it's mostly from the sea. That's mm-hmm. where ninety-seven percent of Earth's water is. No ocean, no life, no blue, no green, right. and right. so it just—it seems so logical. Things that I learned that I later relearned as an ecologist after that—that that name, ecologist came into being and learning about quote, environmental studies I mean farmers are in, environmental right.
1: <laughs> yeah. experts, experts in a way, yeah. they have
2: to be yeah. and, and fishermen too they see how the seasons come and go and storms and see the connection we anyway, uh, I think in the remarkably we've learned more about those connections more about the nature of the ocean and how we relate to it in the last few decades than during all preceding history
1: yeah.
2: and part of it is related to the technologies such as the scuba such as submarines and 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 the the equipment that takes us high in the sky to look back on earth and see
0: that it's blue <laughs> this,
2: that it's blue <laughs> yeah. right yeah. and then to turn our gaze to the universe beyond and see there's nothing else like this place yeah. nothing this is it there are other planets. There's certainly other suns and moons, but we know of no place that is suitable for life as we know it. No place blessed with an ocean. Certainly, nothing that is accessible to us in anything like the lifetimes or ten lifetimes beyond for us to consider an alternative place to set up housekeeping. Right. I mean, there's there's Mars, of course, and there is some water there. But the atmosphere on Mars, it's mostly carbon dioxide, Mm. much like the early atmosphere of Earth. It's taken approximately 4.5 billion years of fine-tuning to get Earth to a state that is suitable for the likes of us. And much of that has taken place in the last billion years, Mm. and especially in the last half-billion years when the explosion of multicellular life took place but preceded by by billions of years of mostly microbial action acting on the atmosphere. Once photosynthesis came along, generating oxygen, grabbing carbon dioxide, transforming this planet into the place that we now take pretty much for granted,
1: yeah.
2: it's phenomenal. So uh, terraforming Mars is a big deal. Yeah. Not anything that's likely to happen in a reasonable time frame. If, and, and with no ocean, it seems very limited in terms of what we could do to Mars to make it hospitable for even a small number of us, right. let alone 7 billion of us huh, or 10 billion of us. <laughs> Earth is where it's at. And we, we've lost more during the same period of time that we've learned more. So, About the yeah. ocean and everything else.
0: And it, it seems to me that um, in, you know, the mid-20th century, late 20th century, there was this idea out there that the ocean, of all things, could take care of itself, that it was so vast, so powerful, so inscrutable. Um, and I wonder, mean, um, and, and you know, I suppose that was never true, but I, I wonder, you know, how do you trace your... Sense, and I, I do. I do sense that this evolved. That that the ocean is in trouble, um, and and much more vulnerable and responsive to to human life than than I think most of us, anyway, realized. How did that start it's, to become clear to you? Well,
2: it's not just clear to me. Yeah. It's the recognition that we have the capacity to draw down the assets, if you want to call them that, but the populations of wildlife in the sea yeah uh, there are policies put in place in the 1950s 60s and 70s and even current policies that seem perversely to be based on the assumption that there's a large quantity of of excess out there that we can extract from the ocean in terms of the number of fish or whales yeah, or... Yeah,
0: that it's kind of, it was kind of a limitless or, or, supply, right? That,
2: right, uh-huh. right. And that, no matter how much we took, it would always regrow. And now we know otherwise because since the 1950s and in some cases since the 1980s, we have gone from from one species after another and drawn them down by as much as 90 percent. In some cases, 99 percent of mm-hmm. some species are gone because of our capacity to find, kill extract and market, consume things such as, well, we already by the 1950s had demonstrated our power to do this with whales. But we stopped before any of the large whale species except the, the one population of gray whales was already extinct. There was an Atlantic population that persisted on into the 16 and perhaps even into the 1700s, but then was mm. uh, exterminated. But we, so we never got to a chance to do whatever it is we're going to do to save them or use them. But right now, the number of several of the great whale species is so depressed they may not recover. Uh, bowheads, a few thousand; the northern right whales, only 300; mm. some of the smaller. Dolphins and uh, small whale species Uh, in the Sea of Cortez, the Vaquita, a few hundred individuals. In New Zealand, there are two kinds of dolphins that are limited to just a few hundred individual
1: Mm.
2: individuals. So we may be the last to know them, uh, no matter what we do. Uh, The last seal in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea, the monk seal of that area, was seen in 1952. I didn't know that. Hmm. I was a child and I didn't even know they existed. Imagine seals on Miami Beach Hmm. or seals in Galveston Bay. They they used to go as far north as Galveston and they're gone forever. Hmm. There's still maybe a thousand individual monk seals of a different species in Hawaii and fewer than that in the Mediterranean, but that's it. So this is a critical time. We are at tipping points,
1: mm-hmm.
2: not just for big conspicuous species like goliath groupers and whale sharks and <laughs> mm-hmm. and whales, but many small creatures that we haven't even discovered are lost in the, when coral reefs are are lost. Mm-hmm. Many are home bodies. so if you lose a particular stretch of reef, destroy it um, through dynamite fishing or through coastal uh, transformation for building houses and things so much has been lost in coastal areas uh, so you lose their home before,
0: and they, they go well to, and their
2: lives yeah, their lives yeah, yeah. their habitats with a whole host of creatures that occur there and only there
0: um you know i i i um i read an interview that you gave together with Roger Payne who um, who you you spent some time working with. And he uh, and Katie Payne were known especially for uh, he, charting, studying the songs of whales and understanding um, how this worked and how, in fact, complex it is. You made this statement in this interview I wanted to ask you about. Um, you said, for whatever it's worth, the songs of the 60s, you were talking about the whale songs, um, are much more beautiful to human ears than the songs of the 70s.
2: And beyond. And, yeah. and actually, it's Roger Roger, and Katie uh, observed that, and I was able to verify that with my own ears, <laughs> yeah. listening to some of those earlier recordings that are just majestic, just long, rippling sounds that were recorded mostly uh, in Bermuda that appeared on a, a record, the songs of humpback right. whales, mm-hmm. that... that uh,
0: and this, and I didn't, and I Roger. did not realize that. And so mm-hmm. you heard, you heard the change of generations between the generations.
2: And now there's so much sound in the ocean, something that we were simply not tuned into until fairly recently, that because of shipping, because of seismic surveys, because of so much activity, the, the Navy does testing, hmm. uh, even for science, in terms of trying to understand the, the temperature over broad areas of the sea since sound travels at different rates depending on the temperature, cold water versus warm water it's possible to get some idea over whole ocean basins the nature of the, of the, the temperature, something that scientists, all of us should really want to know about the state of the planet, is right. the planet how, it's not is the planet warming, it's how fast and what are the patterns and what's the ocean doing because since the ocean governs temperature regulates climate and weather and so many things. It's a valid experiment but it's a valid concern about what that sound these pulses of sound so large that they can travel across entire ocean basins. What that might do to Mm -hmm. wildlife that require sound for their mode of, of existence. And it's not just marine mammals although it certainly is marine mammals it's it's fish. Mm. It's crustaceans. It's mm. life generally affected by, by the atmosphere of, of sound right. in which they live.
0: You know, um, that's so inter- I just recently interviewed a, an acoustic ecologist who's working on he's very concerned about the preservation of natural sound and silence, right. but silence, which he doesn't define as the absence of sound, but the absence of noise.
2: That's a wonderful you know, definition. But he's working <laughs> in
0: places like Yellowstone, and again, you right. know, you're you're just extending that that this this intrusion of noise um, beneath the, <laughs> beneath the water beneath the
2: ocean. Well, acoustic signals are so important to creatures in the sea. You can only see the visual yeah. uh, distance is fairly limited certainly in places like San Francisco Bay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or any coastal area, or most coastal areas, uh, but even in the clearest ocean water. We're talking a few hundred feet, uh, even under the best of circumstances. And, of course, the ocean is dark half the time. Right. So these creatures and, live
0: by their ears and not their eyes, which and, is also and most, hard for us to remember.
2: M- most of the ocean is dark all of the time. You yeah. think about it. Yeah. You get below 1,000 feet... And the average depth of the ocean is two and a half miles. <laughs> Most of the ocean is dark, yeah. all of the time, yeah. and therefore, other signals—chemical signals, acoustic signals, uh, whatever—it yeah. it, it really have a magnified importance over what we think of as uh, communication, where vis- visual cues are are really fundamental.
0: Mm. You have said that if you could travel back in time, you'd go to the Florida Gulf Coast 1,000 years ago. I mean, what would you find mm. if you went there?
2: Well, people ask me sometimes, where is the best place to go diving? Yeah. And I say, almost anywhere 50 years ago. Huh. Huh. <laughs> 50 years is a, is a horizon in terms of change, more change truly than during all preceding human history. Hmm. But imagine 1,000 years ago, there's certainly humans living along the Gulf of Mexico, even ten or 12,000 years ago. We don't know exactly how far back human impacts have gone, but our numbers were really small. It took until 1800 for there to be a billion people on Earth, 2 billion hmm. by the time I came along, 4 billion by 1980, and now 7 billion and rising. And it's, there, our sheer numbers are really costing, uh, come at a cost. Our our prosperity means that other creatures get displaced. But a thousand years ago, with our relatively small numbers, maybe a few million people uh, around the world, I mean, certainly a few million, um, but widely dispersed, and even for those clusters of people that existed in fairly large numbers in population centers, in that we, we know about, um, the impact compared to anything that we've experienced in the last hundred years was relatively small. Even so, a thousand years ago, our ability to impact wildlife, Ed, Ed Wilson, the biologist from Harvard who's yeah. so famous for his writings and and the understanding of nature, So that we consumed the large, the slow, and the tasty on the land, so we exterminated many of the big creatures that shared space with us during the time from 10,000 years ago up until, well, Mm. recent uh, centuries. Um, But in the ocean, the ocean was relatively intact. Yes, some whales were taken even 1,000 years ago, and some fish, other marine mammals and birds, but You know, our capacity to transform the nature of nature has been a phenomenon largely of the last 1,000 years. Here's the wonderful thing, though. Diving into the ocean, it's like diving into the history of life on Earth, not just Mm. over the last 50 or 1,000, but the last million, 10 million, 100 million years. Because creatures are there that have been there for several hundred million years. Not mm-hmm. those same creatures, but they're, they're, they're near relatives like jellyfish.
0: right?
2: Like, well, sharks have been around for 300 million years. Uh, horseshoe crabs, creatures that lured me into the ocean as a child in New Jersey, have a history that goes back at least 300 million years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many forms of life that were found in the ocean long before there were multicellular creatures uh, occupying space on the land.
0: So we talk about so, geologic time, but there's also ocean time.
2: That's right, <laughs> <laughs> which is geologic time. Yeah. You know, it's just a different way of thinking. Yeah. There were no flowering plants. There were no birds going back to the time 100 million years ago when there was plenty of life in the sea,
1: Mm.
2: plenty of action there. Fish were swimming, jellyfish were pulsing, coral reefs were established, sponges were all over the place, and sponges are still all over the place. Mm. But we have the capacity to not just alter the occurrence of and the existence of many of these conspicuous forms of life, but the chemistry of the ocean itself, the chemistry of the planet is being altered through what we're putting into the atmosphere. The carbon dioxide that excess, I mean, we need carbon dioxide. Yeah. Photosynthesis requires carbon dioxide. That generates oxygen that drives the food webs through photosynthesis, fixing carbon. So we don't want to get rid of all of the carbon dioxide. But too much creates the greenhouse effect that we are now experiencing, along with the methane that's being pumped into the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases, so that we're altering the nature of nature. And excess carbon dioxide in the ocean is turning to carbonic acid. Hmm. So we're seeing, and we've just witnessed in the last few decades, especially the last 10 years, a trend toward increased acidification of the sea. Bad news if you're an oyster or a clam, Hmm. or a coral reef with a calcium carbonate shell. But it's bad news for life in general because all life has a certain sensitivity to the acidity or the alkalinity of the environment around them.
0: And that's a simple idea that anybody can understand without being a scientist. And
2: it's just on our watch. It's just happened. Again, I feel like a witness. I feel as if I'm sort of a, a living fossil. (laughs) <laughs> watching change of geologic magnitude happen since I was a child.
0: You, you know, I, I know that over the years you've been called in to, in times of, you know, epic catastrophes like the Exxon Valdez spill, but um, I, I was reading, you know, you've also been called, you, you, you've observed what happens to oceans after wars and also, are very aware of I don't know what do they call it the, um, the, the just the, the accumulated effect of garbage, um, the Great Pacific right. Garbage Patch. Um, these are not things that I had really heard of, even as a you know fairly well informed
2: person. They didn't exist until fairly recently,
0: uh-huh.
2: but the news is out. I think one of the reasons I am truly optimistic is that. Fifty years ago, even twenty years ago, we didn't know. We didn't have. Did not have the capacity to see, to understand what we now can see, can understand about what we're doing to the life support system, the systems that keep us alive. Uh, some people call this phenomenon the, the boundaries that hold the world together, if you will, mm. and, and make a world hospitable for the likes of us. Now, microbes can survive under very different circumstances and they probably will, mm. as they have far into the past, they will far into the future, despite what any one species such as humans can do to change the nature of the place. Or even if a comet should strike the earth as it did some 65 million years ago or a pair of comets or large meteors or whatever it is that caused the transformative nature of, of events when dinosaurs phased out and we began to uh, at our long ago ancestors, uh, mammals in the sea and mammals on the land that represent the, a turning point mm. in the development of life on Earth. So, But now we know. Mm. It's partly because ironically the the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, to give us the energy in a very short period of time, dense forms of energy that enable us to send rockets into space, that enable us to power submersibles into the sea and instrumentation that gives us communication that has, you know, now we know because of this capacity to look at ourselves with new eyes, but it couldn't happen
1: Mm, had we
2: been powering our civilization on whale oil or its predecessors, it's only because of this amazing um, transformation made possible through the energy sources that now, it turns out, are coming back to haunt us.
0: Right. No, that, that is ironic, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But, but now we know, and so now that we know, we can do better. We can use the power of knowledge, which is far more important than the power of the energy <laughs> that has taken us to get this knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now that we've got it, we can act in ways that can save ourselves, can, can move us in a direction that will give us a chance at an enduring place within the limits of this planet. That, that do, that now we know there are limits. Yeah. We didn't know that going back right. 50 years ago and all preceding time. As long as humans have been on Earth, this is the first time we've had that power of knowing and there's still time, maybe not a lot, to reverse these trends. Looking at the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, there really is cause for, for I mean, emergency action. Yeah. This is not a joke. We're not making this up. This is just reporting observations, hard-won observations, made possible by the burning of fossil fuels, oh, by the way, that give us the power of seeing these trends, How the the melting of polar ice correlated with the warming trend that's correlated with the c o two and the methane. And I mean, it's all very straightforward,
0: yeah, and, but and it, it, well, I mean, it, it gets
2: complicated it, it, <laughs> when you think about the politics. That's the problem,
0: well, it does. And so I'm wondering, um how uh, what you know, you know, what are some of the most direct and basic forms um, for ordinary people to to take this knowledge in and act on it. I mean, um, we're told to eat fish now <laughs> because it's good for us. I've heard, I've yeah. understood that you don't eat fish or you don't eat much fish. So, 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 tell me about that. How how might yeah. we think differently about that simple eating habits?
2: Well, the first thing that I suggest that people should do is, first of all, get informed, get up to speed, do, do some. I mean, every everybody has access to information on a scale that is just breathtaking compared yeah. to what was available even 10 years ago. Who had iPads? Who had um, a cell phone in every pocket, yeah. <laughs> every other pocket, or whatever? You know, We can download Google Earth. We can look at the ocean in Google Earth and dive beneath the surface. We can connect the dots. We can see wars, and we see the impact of wars on the other side of the planet. What that does to water to wildlife, to the air, to our life support system, and how it relates no matter where on the planet you are. What happens everywhere is of relevance. So first, do what you can to get up to speed with a knowledge base that's there. Second, look in the mirror. Whatever is, whoever it is you are, you have some kind of talent. (laughs) The first starts with knowing, but do you have a way with music, a way with numbers, are you a lawyer? Do you have some insight into policy? Do you have any position in, in office? Are you a mom? Are you a teacher? Are you a dad? Are you a, a fisherman? No. <laughs> Whoever, are you? a communicator, use your power. Artists use their power. Uh, Jackson Brown has has written a song that talks of uh, if you if he could be anywhere in time, it would be now. Why? <laughs> because this is the time, as never before. Uh, we know is never again perhaps we have a chance to do something about it. Wait right. 10 years, 50 years, uh, we may have lost a chance to save bluefin tuna because starting in the 70s, we started to consume bluefin and other tunas at a scale that is unlike anything that the, they or any other creature in the ocean has ever known. We have the power with our technologies, with with acoustic means to locate where they are in the ocean, new means of marketing, new markets for wildlife from the sea. It's a new era. Uh, we've drawn down the large fish and many of the small ones, too, by, on the average, you know, 80%, sometimes 90%, in some cases, 99%. Right. There's still a chance, as long as some of them are there. Ten percent of the sharks are all that remain, from when I was a child. Yeah. We, we may lose sharks, and that means a critical part of the whole food web in the ocean.
0: You know, I wonder so, you. Yeah, you are. I've I read that you really enjoy swimming with sharks. Is that right? Of
2: course. Well, I I go to Wall Street sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Washington D.C. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> That might and be And the scarier. ocean. <laughs> no, we used, to, we used to think of sharks as bad guys. Yeah. That the only good shark was a dead shark. And man-eaters, they used to tell me, watch out for the man-eaters. And I said, well, I don't qualify. I don't have to worry about man-eaters. <laughs> Women are safe. But actually, sharks have to worry about Man eating sharks, uh, humans eating sharks.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We oh, yeah. consume shark eaters. Millions of sharks. You know we're shark eaters, and and that's relatively new. Some sharks have probably been consumed by humans as long as humans have been around, and and vice versa. But now, you know, if 50 people a year get get bitten by sharks, that's big news. Yeah and usually it's fewer than that, and deaths number, a very small number, but consider the number of shark deaths that we cause every year. Maybe as many as on the order of 80 Mm. million sharks are taken Mm. largely for shark fins for the soup, and that's a new taste, not new in China, but a new, newly accessible kind of delicacy, Mm. and it's not just limited to China. Globally now, there are... People who consider it a luxury, a delicacy, to eat sharks, who never would have dreamed of doing this even ten years ago, so, let alone fifty or hundred.
0: I mean, if you clearly, there are people who who survive on fish, but if you um, not, not many, not, not, not many, many, not many. So I was, no. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, would you <laughs> like for for people to stop eating fish if, um, based on what you know, if
2: they could survive? Well, for your own health, you should know what you're eating. And that's true with a hamburger, mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as for fish. But when you are served a hamburger, it's likely to be some form of of beef, at least some form of mammal. Yeah. But they don't call it a mammal burger. You don't call you don't get Kentucky Fried Bird. Right, right. right. You're pretty sure that it's chicken when you get served yeah. catch of the day or fish and chips, or fish, whatever it is, uh, fish sticks. You have no idea what kind of fish it might be yeah. or where it's been swimming or how old it is. Most people are not aware that unlike chickens that can go to market from egg to adult to your plate in maybe you know six or seven months, yeah. maybe a year, but even little fish like herring take about three years to get to maturity, mm. and a big fish like tunas, according to Barbara Block, who studies blue fins in particular, but many other forms of life in the sea as well, 10 to 14 years for maturity. Mm. They can live to be 20 or maybe even 30 years if left in the sea. Mm. Orange ruffy, a creature that is new on the menu in the last 20 years or so because they occur in deep water, finding them. I mean, we never fished in 2,000 feet of water before the latter part of the 20th century and now into the 21st, but like Chilean sea bass. They take a long time to mature. Mm. For orange ruffy, it's on the order of 30 years to mature. And that little filet on your plate that may cost, you know, eight ninety-five 95 a pound in your local supermarket, more than that in a restaurant, but yeah. nonetheless, may take 100 years. Mm. They can live to be, it seems, on the order of two centuries. Like some whales, the bowhead whales may be as much as two centuries old. Mm. We don't Raise cows that are even ten years old to go to market, maybe a year or two, and so there's not great efficiency in feeding ourselves with life from the sea that takes so long to grow. The investment is enormous. Life that we take out of the sea, they're mostly carnivores. They're meat eaters. We don't raise meat eaters to eat. It's not efficient in terms of sunlight to plants to protein. The the few fish that Really, are good choices, I think, are catfish, tilapia, and the variations on the theme of carp. The the plant-eating creatures that okay. sunlight plants protein, and they grow fast. Do you eat those? They taste good.
1: Do-
2: I don't, but you know, for those who really want fish, or or even for an efficient way to get protein, animal protein, it is better than chicken to ra- raise catfish and and uh, Tilapia, it's very fast and and very yeah. efficient and in closed systems. I mean, some people say, oh, tilapia, they're a scourge because in some kinds of carp, they get loose in the water systems and they take over the place. Well, you know, that's part of why they're such good candidates for cultivation because they're hardy, they grow fast, they eat plants.
1: Mm.
2: So under closed systems like the Chinese have done for centuries ponds that don't leak out into right. rivers and streams. They're closed systems where, as they say, you get more crop per mm-hmm. drop, mm-hmm. far more efficient source of protein than cows that take thousands of gallons of water for one cow. And for these these very efficient forms of sunlight to plants, to protein that some of these fish species are, we we could do well, I think, to look at the options. There are Mm. on the order of 25,000 variations on the theme of fish that we know about, more that we haven't discovered. There may be some worthy candidates out there, just as there are about 9,000 kinds of birds, but we have narrowed it down to ducks and geese and turkeys and chickens out of the great array that are out there that we cultivate. And we don't tend to eat wild birds commercially anymore. Mm. But we do take wild fish commercially, and it's killing the ocean, and in a way, therefore, it's harming us as well.
1: Right.
2: By, by taking these critical links out of the food chains in the ocean, it's just, it's just changing the way the ocean works. Right. And we now know why that matters. The ocean is our life support system. We need big areas of the sea where the fish are safe. I mean, people will always go out and fish. And if you're catching fish for dinner or you're feeding your family, you're feeding your community, that's one level of extraction that we were able to manage going back over all preceding history up until the last few hundred years. Okay. Okay. But starting about 500 years ago, we began to amp up <laughs> and, and take on whales on a scale that was unprecedented. And now we're doing it with all other forms of wildlife in the oh. sea and it's not working. Yeah. So anyway, huh, that's yeah. why I don't eat fish and why I suggest there are other choices that you have out there. It only accounts for about a 1% of the calories that feed people anyway, Yeah. according to the the food experts, I go to some of these food security conferences and I listen closely. Do we really need to take
3: right.
2: millions of tons of wildlife? And the excuse is, wow, we've got to feed people. But if that's the excuse, then we better you know, pack up because the way we're going, there won't <laughs> be not, wildlife not in not the sea. <laughs> it's not sustainable. By the middle of the 20th century, there won't be commercial fishing if we continue doing what we're now doing without Taking serious measures to cut back on Gosh. how much we take, and protecting that's big areas. That's very stark.
0: Areas. That's a very stark.
2: It's just idea. the truth.
0: Um, you know, I, I just I want to ask you a few more questions, but I I don't want to um, to finish before noting another piece of social change evolution, if you will. This happened in your lifetime. You know how? I mean, you did mention in that early expedition you were one the one woman, and there were seventy men. And it's just its so interesting looking through, reading you and reading about you, you know, the headlines that accompanied you through your life. Uh, Beacon Hill housewife to lead team of female aquanauts. <laughs> or after you were the first person, the first human being, and still that same only human being to walk at that depth on the ocean floor. Brave mom's historic dive to the bottom of the world. <laughs> um, And I and I also think as a as a mother, you know, I think you were really uh, balancing juggling a lot with this very with this life as an explorer. Um, And I wonder, you know, your children are grown now, I think. Is that true?
2: Yes, yeah. well, they think so.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but so I mean, how did they how how was that being a mother raising children while while doing all these amazing historic things which took you far away?
2: Well, first of all, they didn't did not seem amazing nor of historic consequence at the time. You're right. And I guess time will tell. It's a funny just thing how, about life, isn't it? <laughs> it just happens. Yeah. But I think the these headlines like the Sylvia sails away with 70 men, I think the the real turning point probably came in 1970 when I I applied to participate in the underwater living uh, experiment that was taking place in the U.S. Virgin Islands called the Tektite Project. There were teams of so-called aquanauts who trained and were able to live for, well, for two weeks, ten days to two weeks underwater. And and it was preceded in 1969 by a a phase of this project called Tektite One where four men stayed for two full months living underwater at a depth of 50 feet, Mm. but they could swim out of their underwater laboratory and into the ocean beyond, where they actually conducted experiments using the ocean as the laboratory. That's the key hmm. to be able to not drag creatures or samples back into back into your laboratory. our realm, mm-hmm. right, but to take yourself into theirs and to observe creatures as they are on their home turf and and not just the individuals, but the whole system, yeah. how currents affect the life. and temperature regimes, night and day changes, and how it all interacts. So an opportunity to be there, I had already been diving in many places around the world by by that time, and it, it didn't occur to me that women would be excluded, and it didn't occur to some other women who applied as well. They just didn't even bother to say that mm-hmm. it was just for men. Yeah. And when applications came in from women that had qualifications on a par with the men. The decision had to be made, shall there or shall there not be women? And Jim Miller, who was the head of the program, who I think had a really good relationship with his wife and probably had a really good mom, (laughs) (laughs) he he had the decision to make and he said, well, half the fish are female, Uh, (laughs) half the dolphins and whales. I I guess we could put up with a few women. But years later, I had a conversation with Captain George Bond, who was considered the father, one of the pioneers of saturation diving. He was with the U.S. Navy for many years, and he had some oversight of the Tech Type project. And he said, "You know, I I really objected to having you as an aquanaut." And I, I was really not happy that they allowed you to do that. And I said, why? He said, well, you know, you did all right. And, I, and it was okay. But, but you're a mom. You're a mother. <laughs> and he said, what? <laughs> I said, there were, there were fathers on the, who were awkward. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's different. You were a mother. <laughs> huh. Huh. And I did have, uh, at that point, uh, three small children and young children, mm. but uh, huh. It didn't occur to me that that would be a problem, mm-hmm. but he said, well, it was dangerous, and could." I just didn't think it was all that dangerous, but if it was dangerous for me. It was dangerous for everyone. I, I guess there were, and there still are, some unknowns about... <laughs> What you do, and whether you're going high in the sky, or yeah. climbing trees, or mountains, or deep in the sea, or getting, we're still in, a learning. <laughs> it's
0: or getting in a car, is yeah. also dangerous. Or getting in a car—that's
2: really that's the most dangerous thing I do. I
0: yeah. Think. Well, and did your children? I just have to imagine that that formed them. Um, the fact—I mean—and it, it, it is dangerous, as you say. I mean, it's—it's. It's, there's a story you tell about uh, Edward Ellsberg, this yes. na- this mm. a- naval commander writer who inspired you, and he had written that nothing that the ingenuity of man has permitted him to do is more unnatural than working as a diver.
2: Uh, right? I mean, so
0: it's not like you were doing something easy. Um, and I just have to think that that formed your children in terms of living with that example of, of putting yourself out there.
2: I don't think that it has scarred them particularly. They yeah. seem to take it in stride, and they all love the ocean. They're do all, they? Oh, yeah. And they all have been kidnapped from time to time and taken on expeditions to places that they yeah. seem to have enjoyed. My son recalls with particular pleasure diving with uh, a friendly dolphin in San Salvador in mm-hmm. the Bahamas, mm-hmm. where I think the, all three children, I, I took them out of school <laughs> for a whole <laughs> that, week.
0: That was probably the biggest sin. <laughs> <sense.
2: laughs> yeah. Compensated for some of the rest they had to put up with.
1: Yeah.
2: They've all been diving with whales. And, you know, it. it I was able through some of the things that I do to give them a special glimpse of things that I'm so pleased to have been able to share with them. On the other hand, I greatly miss times that because I was away, that I, I wasn't able to be with them on occasions that were special to them and to me too. Yeah. But it's just there are always trade-offs.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: But you know, going back to the living underwater
0: yeah.
2: experiments and being referred to not as aquanauts. The women were <laughs> referred to as aquababes and aquabells uh, and no, no. even aqua aquanauties. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's just astonishing. But it is. We didn't care what they called us as long as they let us go, and they did, fortunately.
1: Yeah.
2: But now, just fast forward to the present time. There's only one... Underwater research laboratory in existence. It's the Aquarius. I've had a chance to saturate, as they say, spend time there, living underwater, on two previous occasions, and may. I'm looking forward to going back again this summer in July. But it may be, the last summer, that that this facility will be funded. Uh, we continue, however <laughs> tight the budgets, to fund a, a space program. Mm-hmm and we continue to fund ships on the surface of the sea and we're continuing to promote remotely operated systems to operate in the the ocean, but the two Pisces submersibles that are out in Hawaii are accessed to go to to as much as 2,000 meters, a little more, you know, Mm. more than a mile. Mm. They could have been used to go look at the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico and there are very few submarines in the world that can do that for research purposes and huh, the Alvin currently, our workhorse of of research submarines globally, is in pieces. It's being reconfigured to be able to go ultimately to 6,000 meters which would be great. Oh. Uh, I think the initial stage will take it back to its uh, recent operating depth of, of uh, two and a half miles. You know, but we have limited access to the sea and presently We're about to see a zero funding base for the National Underwater Research Program at a time when Mm. the ocean needs long-term monitoring of coral reefs, which is what the Aquarius does, or of access to the deep sea, which is what the Pisces submarines Mm. allow. We have few in the world that have this capacity, but others are now racing forward with China is building a 7,000 meter sub that they will be testing to that depth really? this summer. Hmm. Yeah, India is building a 6,000 meter sub. Russia has three So maybe we'll have the,
0: the huh. ocean race now. I <laughs> like hope. We hope the space <laughs> well, race in the
2: 1960s. You know, it's a race for the human race <laughs> yeah, to explore yeah. the ocean. Yeah. And it's a race with, with understanding mm-hmm. the ocean so we can take care of it right. or, or figure out what? How far can we go? Deep sea mining is now beginning to right. become a reality. It was a big big deal back in the 1980s, but it sort of sloped off as a unrealistic enterprise for several decades because of the cost of operating in the deep sea. But now, new technologies are enabling nations such as China mm-hmm. and Japan and private enterprise. Uh, there's a major company that's looking to work in in the deep sea to exploit the minerals that are there, yeah. with, without really having the kind of oversight that we can have because we can see what's happening on the land. There are big problems oh, with see. coal mining, it's hidden. big problems with other things, but yeah. in the ocean, <laughs> who's watching?
1: Right.
2: And where's the technology that will enable us to safeguard things that are of real value to all of us? Mm. This is a critical time.
0: And, you know, I I feel like you are such an important and kind of magnetic voice for this, both because of your knowledge and that, that understanding of what's endangered, but also because of de- really the delight, the passion, the joy that you take in knowing the ocean in a way that most people never will. And that's kind of where I want to circle back um, as we finish. I mean, here's... Here's some lines you wrote, I believe, and it's in similar to to how you described to me what it was like to walk on the bottom of the ocean. You know, I, you said, as I wandered through the area, the sub-powering along behind, I concentrated on observing the corals, especially the bioluminescent spirals of bamboo. Why do they pulse with light? Why do they glow at night? How do they, how do they and their neighbors survive in the eternal night of the deep sea? Are you still... Making discoveries, being surprised, you know, asking new questions like that?
2: Always. Always. That's the joy of being a scientist and an explorer. Mm -hmm. You you do what little children do. You ask questions Mm -hmm. like, who, what, why, when, where, how? (laughs) And you never stop and you never cease being surprised. You just never stop that sense of wonder. It is fantastic that life exists at all. And I revel in just the joy of being out in some wild place or even in my own backyard. Hmm. I just look at a leaf. It's an amazing thing, what goes on in a leaf. And it happens all the time and we can breathe because of it or because of photosynthesis that takes place there and in the sea. And, And knowing that, I think it's just impossible to be bored.
0: <laughs> and you're still diving, aren't you?
2: Well, yeah, I breathe, so I can dive.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, tell me, where have you been recently? Like, just what would be an example of what you're doing now?
2: Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was on an expedition off the coast of Panama to a group of little islands called Coiba, a beautiful little offshore islands, reefs that have been unfortunately heavily exploited. By fishing in recent times, as it was, I first went to Panama in 1965,
1: hmm.
2: and I go back both both coasts. Panama is one of those blessed nations that has two oceans,
1: hmm.
2: and we are too, of course, yeah. Atlantic and Pacific, and actually we border in the Arctic as well. But you know the changes in, in the in just the sharks. I used to see sharks all over the place. Hmm. And now you're lucky. I feel really so fortunate when I see a shark. Really? It's it's a sign of health if you see a shark because the system has to be in pretty good shape to accommodate big predators. I but see. it's hard to find a place where you see sharks when you first get in the water or, or any big fish at all. The site where the Tektite operation took place in 1970, I was back last year it's uh, the reefs are simply gone they're not there mm. the elkhorn and staghorn coral it's like a meltdown it's just rubble mm. and the fish the scientists who worked on the fish uh, i was mainly looking at the interactions between the seaweeds and the fish that tend to munch on the seaweeds the parrotfish and surgeonfish and the like but there there were uh, about a dozen variations on the theme of grouper. And I saw one variation on the mm. theme of grouper mm. when I went back, and very few fish of any kind. It's mm. just heartbreaking. But the good news is that when places in the ocean are protected, if we stop killing the fish, if we stop the flow of pollution into the sea, the, nature is resilient. And places that have been protected in the last 10 years show remarkable capacity to improve. can never go back to what it was like, but you can make them better than they otherwise would be if we just let things continue as they are. We have the power. That's why I'm so pleased to be able to have this interview, to tell people, look, it's not too late. The things that you can do, that all of us together can do to protect nature, to respect the trees, respect the fish, respect all forms of life and realize we're part of the action. And we need to secure for ourselves a place within those natural systems. And it doesn't mean just cutting all the trees and, and tearing up the place to get the minerals and eating all the fish and other creatures that are there. We need to think about how can we have a lighter touch how can we live within our means? Do Maybe you, um, with 7 billion people it's uh, unrealistic, but we've got to try. We have to.
0: It, there's something, um, you know, it, it seems like when people, uh, we, we, we are able to uh, make a connection with Creatures we see around us, right? Birds, mm. for example, a, a, a prominent example. Right,
1: right.
0: It, it, it's 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 striking when you talk about being at the bottom of the ocean, and there's this incredible proliferation, this profusion of life and beauty and, and strangeness. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, in a sense, you know, this is the the way we're very human centered. We You can kind of have a feeling like these beautiful trees and these birds were made for us to enjoy. (laughs) You know, and then, but there's something very mysterious. Oh, we used to eat them. We used to eat them. them. Okay, we used to eat them, chop them down. my
2: my uncle, I have an (laughs) uncle who was a market hunter early in the 20th century, but he couldn't do it as a middle-aged man because they were gone. So he had to do something else. He became a stonemason. He wasn't exactly, you know, bereft of talent. Um, people have the capacity to do all sorts of things, uh, and fishermen can do things other than just go out and catch fish. They have to
1: because
2: yeah. the fish are disappearing
1: yeah.
2: and more than that the 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 fish if they they don't belong to anybody in particular, the Charles clover uh, British scientist says we've allowed the fishermen to steal the ocean to steal the fish. It's not quite like that. We, we encourage them to go fish, because we want to eat them, yeah. eat the fish. But I mean, in fact, we subsidize fishing. Uh, presently, uh, globally, uh, fishing, commercial fishing is subsidized on the order of like, between between twenty five and fifty billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. That's to we pay the fishermen to fish. But I mean, as somebody me- easy.
0: as somebody who actually knows what's down there, who's seen it and enjoyed it, um. I mean, does it does it seem to you... I mean, is mystery a word you use? Is there something mysterious about the fact that there is such beauty and wildness, um,
2: you know... Well, the whole planet our, is like that. The, the whole planet is, yeah. Really? <laughs> but but for sure, yeah. when you go into an unexpl- any part of the ocean, yeah. the kelp forests of California, the, the coral reefs of the Florida Keys or in, in Hawaii or anywhere, anywhere, even in lakes and rivers and streams... You'll see creatures in a different way. Their atmosphere we, our atmosphere is air, theirs is water. They need oxygen too, most of them. And well, that's part of what yeah. makes the, the engine run. But they d- derive their oxygen using gills of one sort or another or through their skin. They get the oxygen that powers the respiration that they undertake. But you know, they have look at a dragonfly larva, they have a face. Look at a dragonfly, an adult, it has a face. Mm. It's odd, it looks alien perhaps to us, but if you line up 5,000 dragonflies or 5,000 grouper of one species or 5,000 black cats, you'll find every one is different. Mm. And it isn't just that you can see subtle differences that set them apart, like we know that with cats and dogs and horses and kids, humans, every face is really different. But it's true with all forms of life,
1: mm.
2: and I have such fun taking people to the Monterey Aquarium or the Aquarium of the Bay in San Francisco or any place, Boston Aquarium, New England Aquarium, whatever, where they can actually see fish swimming with something other than lemon slices and butter. They can actually <laughs> see them face to face, and I say, okay, now tr- try to find two that are just exactly alike. And you can't. Mm. If you really look, mm. Mm. the spots are different, the stripes mm. are different. The Position of the eye is just like it's slightly amazing, off. isn't
3: it?
2: It is, and the capacity for variation yeah. coupled with the common ground that we share
3: yeah.
2: with bacteria, with jellyfish, with sponges, mm. with groupers, with cats and dogs and horses. Mm. There's a chemistry of life that has this capacity for enormous variation, mm. maybe infinite variation. It's, I mean, it's a source of. Endless wonder yeah. and something that it's, it's worth using our minds, that special gift that we have. There are other intelligent creatures out there, yeah. whales, dolphins, elephants, right. fish. <laughs> Some of them are really smart, but they don't know what we know. Mm. They can't see the inside of a star or the inside of a starfish, except some of them maybe to eat them. <laughs> but we, we have this power not only to explore, but we can go back in time. We can anticipate the future, far into the future. We can plot a course for ourselves based on intelligence and knowing what no other creatures can know, even those who have been around for the last century along mm. with us. Mm. They may know that the changes have taken place, but they don't know why. We do. They don't know what to do about it. We do. Hmm. And the trick is, okay, homo sapiens, the smart ones, the wise ones, <laughs> let's let's take advantage of that capacity. Yeah, right. prove it. Let's, let's uh, put that into action. and. and right not just be like the bacteria on a dish that consume Mm. everything until they die. Mm. Uh, We don't have to do that. (laughs) We have the power uh, of knowing.
0: (laughs) I I was going to ask you as my final question, you know, how this life you've led, what you know, makes you think about what it means to be human, how that's evolved. I think you've probably just (laughs) started to answer that question.
2: Well, humans have this wonderful capacity for compassion. Mm. They also have compassion, the capacity for great violence, and we are still the same basic creatures that we were ten thousand years ago, and before. So that we look at other forms of life, and the basic question comes to mind: Is it going to eat me, Hmm. or can I eat it? I mean, some very basic things. Or even for other human beings, it's it's caution, because survival is there. So. We're afraid of differences in others, whether it's other people or other forms of life. But we have that power of knowing, power of judgment, the ability to choose a way forward based on unprecedented knowledge, Mm. the unprecedented power. 50 years ago, we didn't know what we now know. 50 years from now, it'll be too late to make decisions because the options will have closed. There may not be sharks in 50 years. may not be coral reefs in 50 years if we continue doing what we're doing. Other creatures may see that things have changed but they don't know the power of taking actions mm. that we have within our grasp. So, I'm so glad to be a human. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I hope that that I will live long enough to see this transition mm. from a from an accelerating decline of circumstances that do not bode well for the human future or for life on earth as we know it. We have the capacity to reverse these trends right. and it starts with knowing. With knowing comes caring. You might not care even if you do know, but knowing is the key yeah. and we have that power.
0: Well, I'm glad you're a human too. And I have loved talking to you, and I'm just—it's been wonderful learning more about what you do and know. And I'm just thrilled to bring it to my listeners. So thank you. And well, thank you. We'll let you know what's you happening under- with this. Yeah,
2: we'll see you underwater someday. I, hope. I
0: love that. <laughs> yeah, always. Do you think everyone should should scuba dive? Is it just, would that Absolutely. be a prescription? Yes.
2: Absolutely. Did I read everyone somewhere that should.
0: your mother started scuba diving when she was 80 or something?
2: Eighty-one.
0: Eighty-one?
2: Yeah. yeah, and she scolded me for not getting her out there sooner. Did she? So, <laughs> here, here. Uh, don't scold me. I'm trying to get you out there. Okay. If you're 81, don't wait any longer. Right. <laughs> anybody who's listening. <laughs> and well. if you are 81, yeah, you go for it. If you, There's plenty of time for anybody before then. But hurry.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> the ocean is changing.
1: Uh.
0: Oh, all right. Well, thank you so much. And we may have some questions. I think we were wondering if there's if there are recordings of you underwater and I and I mean uh, maybe we can send that as an email to the people we've been corresponding with. It might be wonderful to put some of that sure. sound in the radio show. All right. Okay. I think that that can be done. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.
2: <laughs> Bye.